Let's keep our hymnals out this, uh, at this time as we look at the Belgian Confession again tonight, page 855. This evening we'll look at articles 2 and 3. We're going to be turning in God's Word first to Romans chapter 1, page 937. The Bible's there in front of you. And then a bit later to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We look in God's Word. Many years ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book entitled, He is, is There and He is Not Silent. God is there and He is not silent. That captures the subject that we look at tonight. God is and He is not silent. We've looked at His nature and His attributes in Article 1. And now we come to how we know Him. How he reveals himself to us, how he continues to reveal himself to us. Article 1 summarized Scripture's teaching on his nature and on his uh, being. Now we come to that matter of revelation. Familiar to us and yet needful for us to review. We're going to see why this evening, I trust, as we look together at the confession and God's word. First, then, Article 2, the means by which we know God. We know God by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God, his eternal power and his divinity, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, verse 20. All these things are enough to convict men and to leave them without excuse. Second, he makes himself known to us more openly by his holy and divine word, as much as we need in this life, for his glory and for the salvation of his own. And you can set that aside. We'll be looking later at Article 3. We'll keep looking at Article 2, but... We'll also be looking at Article 3 uh, this evening. And now let's draw your attention to God's Word, Romans chapter 1. There in Romans 1, he's talking about how righteousness comes to us by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel speaks of how our righteousness is found not in ourselves, but in Christ. And then it says further that the Lord shows the end of unrighteousness. I direct your attention to verse 18 of Romans 1 as we read God's word this evening. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Keep your Bibles in front of you as we'll be looking at 2 Timothy after we consider these words as it pertains to the matter of God's revelation to us. like the wording of Article 2, it's a, a picture for us. It helps us uh, think of, of how to look at creation. The universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in 
which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder. Make us ponder what? The invisible things of God, his eternal power and his divinity. As scripture says through the apostle Paul in Romans 1.20, all these things are enough to convict men and to leave them without excuse. There's enough there to leave men without excuse. We call this general revelation, the creation preservation and government of the universe points to God. If one reads the universe rightly, it leads one to ponder the reality, the truth of the invisible God. We sang it already in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the the glory of God, the sky pours forth his handiwork. You can look at that this week as you Look in your Bibles, even tonight, creation clearly displays God's power. And it's, it's not all that odd for us to say so. When you think about it, children, what, is an, what does an artist do? Well, he paints pictures, he makes music, and how do we come to know that artist? Well, we listen to their music, we look at their paintings, and we learn something about them. That's what we're talking about here in general revelation. God is telling us about himself in his handiwork, in his creation. Now, we know that sin has made it impossible for us to acknowledge God, but the truth of his power and divinity are seen everywhere, telling us something greater than us exists, something that has existence in himself. Romans 1.19 explains that what can be known about God is plain to all. Because God has made it plain to all. There's no excuse as we look at creation. And those who look at creation and reject the notion of a divine being have no excuse for their unbelief. Another passage you can look at this week, Psalm 104, filled with all of the things God has made to point to his greatness, to reveal himself in his world. The immensity, the intricacy, the order, and the variety all point to something greater than us, a greater being. Just some passages from Scripture. God created the constellations, Amos 5, 8 tells us. He determines the number of the stars, Psalm 147, verse 4. He brings them into existence, Isaiah 40 tells us, verse 26. Also, Psalm 33, verse 6. He's hung the stars in the sky. We read in Job chapter 9. The psalmist says this in Psalm 111 verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. We should delight in the creation. We should delight when we look around at all of the the beauty uh, in the world. We should give praise to God, the one who has made it all. It's there to display his glory and to lead us to worship. We say, yeah, we worship here. This is where we worship, and we worship as we listen to the Word of God, but we worship all week long, and we can go out the doors and see the beauty of creation and worship our God for the splendor of the world that he has made. We ought to do that. Even without the benefit of human invention, such as microscope or telescope, the universe testifies everywhere to God's existence, the orbits of the heavenly bodies, the, the way a leaf is, is formed around its stem, the way the, the birds build nests, the way they migrate, all of these, these things that don't just happen. 
But there's, a, there's an order, there's a design, there's a beauty in all of it. We can see that. A dead seed becoming a plant and bearing a crop. So we see the plants coming up in the fields. There's power and wisdom everywhere in all of creation. And the article says, to summarize the Scripture's teaching, all these are enough to convict men to leave them without excuse. The fact that God is invisible does not mean that we aren't left to ponder the Creator as we look at the world. That's an expected response. We go out, we look around, we, don't, we should be pondering, considering who is behind all of this? Who has made all of this? God's voice, we could say, is undeniable in creation. Well, God is known through creation then first. Then secondly, in the larger portion of the sermon tonight, God is known more openly through his word. He's known to us more openly, we read at the end of article 2. Second, he makes himself known to us more openly by his holy and divine word as much as we need in this life for his glory, for the salvation of his own. Second Timothy chapter 3 speaks of the word. I want to read that as we think about God's word. What does it say about itself? All scripture is breathed out by God, or as I learned it, all scripture is God-breathed and useful, profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, complete, it says here, equipped for every good work. Then article 3 of the Belgic says this of the Scripture's testimony of itself. We confess that this Word of God was not sent nor delivered by the will of men, but that holy men of God spoke, being moved by the Holy Spirit, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1, verse 21. Afterwards, our God, because of the special care He has for us and our salvation, commanded His servants, the prophets and apostles, to commit this revealed Word to writing. He himself wrote with his own finger the two tables of the law. Therefore, we call such writings holy and divine scriptures, holy and divine writings. After our daughter came back from college, got a chance to quiz her on her philosophy class. She thought her exams were over. But in her philosophy class, they were talking about all the ways that we look at the world and all the ways that we come to know about the, the world and, and how we know what we know. And there are many systems of thought, worldviews we might call them, theories about how the world has come to be and how we come to learn about the world. Well, in a period of called the Age of Enlightenment, there was a time when it was uh, characterized by a, a growth in the confidence in man. Now, I'm summarizing here because I don't want to take you into a history class. But in the Age of Enlightenment, there was a, a great confidence in man's ability to understand the world without God, apart from God. And it was said that faith was something of a pre-scientific 
way of looking at things. And now that had to be, we, we grow out of that. That's something that we, we can grow out of because now we have, uh, we have all of these man-made inventions that help us to see the world and understand the world and begin to understand it without any need for an invisible being or power. And really it became a faith of another sort, faith in man. Confidence in man. Rejection of God. A downplaying of the effects of sin in man and just this notion that man is getting better and better and better and will soon be able to attain uh, a status of, of all knowledge necessary in himself. It, it's been going on for hundreds of years today. That's what we have. We have people saying, well, we just lean in on the science and science is going to save us. We'll understand the world. We don't need religion. That's something for those who don't have science or are not committed to science. You know, the stated position of many became that man has risen above the need for faith in the unseen. He should only trust in what he can see, and God can't be seen, so we, we shouldn't believe in him. How did this shift happen? How did this shift go, come about? Well, it came about as a result of the rejection of the Bible as the primary authority for all of life. And it plays out through history, you see it this way, when, when our view of, God, of God's Word is high, when we have a high respect for it, man is humbled before the Word. It, it, it shows the distinction between creator and creature. When the reverse is true, when, when man's view is high, confident in himself, the view of God's Word goes down. We think less of God and we have no need for God or we don't have to to listen to God. He's not our authority. We see it over and over again. When confidence in man's abilities grows, criticism of the Bible grows, and it begins to be seen as just another book at best. Sometimes there's other conclusions, but just another book written by man, not more authoritative than any other, a book with mistakes, which could be doubted and ultimately rejected. Now, today we see people who can talk about the Bible in very glowing terms and yet not speak about it authoritatively. Those are the, what, what, what does this all mean? Why do we need to come back to this idea of what the Word of God is about itself and, and, and how it, we, we should look at it? Because Constantly, it's being chipped away at. Constantly, there are those saying, well, yeah, I have a high respect for the Bible. It's a beautiful book. Ministers saying this, teaching to them. It's a beautiful book, but it's, it's, you know, it, it's a full of errors. It, it, we can't believe everything it says. That's a, it's, a, it's a pre-modern way of seeing the world. It's rather superstitious when you think about it. But it's a very beautiful book, a wonderful book, and, and should be consulted in, in our conversations that we have. Well, you see, what's happening is man is taking to himself an option that was not given to him. We talk about this with regards to Jesus. C.S. Lewis put it out well when he said, you know, that people talk about Jesus as a good moral teacher, a, a noble conversationalist, someone of, to be listened to. And, but he says, that option isn't given to you from Scripture. He is Liar, lunatic, or Lord. He's either a liar because he says he's the son of God 
Or he's a lunatic because he's got these notions in his head that he's something greater than what he is, or he is Lord. And Lewis says that's the only option that the Bible gives to us. It doesn't say that we can stop and give Jesus honor by saying, well, he's, he's a very good teacher. Well, the same thing applies here in the Word. We can say all these wonderful glowing things about it. Oh, it's a beautiful book, the poetry, the Psalms. It just, it makes me, oh, it just makes me alive and all. But if we don't see it as authoritative, God's own Word without error to direct our lives, then we are taking an option that isn't given to us. The Bible doesn't say, just look at, just look at this as, as a nice book with some good aphorisms, a little bit of wisdom, maybe some, some nice uh, sayings that you can put on your stencil on your walls. And, and it, it, it says, it's the very Word of God. It's God speaking to us and therefore is authoritative. What, is the, what, what, what did we read there in, the, in Article 3? I think we don't want to read over this. Because of the special care God has for us and our salvation, he has given us his word. Because of a special care for us and our salvation. This isn't just, well, let's put another book out there to put on the shelf. It's, it's a special providence of God that he gives his very word written down as men are led along by the Spirit so that we have his very word to us, to guide us, to be authoritative in all that it affirms. It doesn't say everything about everything. It doesn't, we've heard this before, but just again, as a, as a, as a reminder, it doesn't, it's not a physics textbook. It's not, a, not an algebra textbook. We don't look there for the formulas to figure out our quadratic equations and all the rest. But we understand that it informs all of these disciplines saying that God is the one who's behind the world and he brings order to it. And as such, when we discover, when we learn uh, from the world, we're to be recognizing that God is the one behind it, leading us. And furthermore, not just for the everyday things of, of, of mathematics and, and, and sociology and all the rest, but for salvation. What, 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 is, our, what is our lifespan? What, where do we come from? Where are we going? The, the, the greater questions, who am I? Why do I exist? What's my purpose? And God says, it's found in me. The Bible is divinely inspired, without error. It's completely trustworthy and authoritative. In Kevin DeYoung's great book, if you haven't read this book, you really ought to. Kevin DeYoung's great book on how to view the Bible, entitled Taking God at His Word. It's a very good book. Shows how the psalmist, he looks at Psalm 119, which is a, a praise of the, the perfections of the Word of God. He says, this is how the psalmist, the psalmist gives us uh, three fundamental affections for God's word. The psalmist says we should delight in God's word, we should desire God's word, and we should depend on God's word. That'll be a sermon somewhere later when we look at, if we can look at Psalm 119 together. There's a lot there, but just, just think of those thoughts as you're, as you're looking at, uh, as you're considering God's word. Delighting in his word? Do I delight in his word? Then do I desire God's word? 
as the psalmist says, and then do I depend on God's word? Is it authoritative? I think those are very helpful points. The Bible should have this place in our heart, not just intellectually, it should move us uh, to, it should affect us, affections, our emotions, because it's God's word. It should govern our lives, stir our affections, and keep our focus. The word inerrancy often comes up in this uh, discussion. The Bible is inerrant. This is not a modern invention. Some say, well, that word came out from uh, the last century, 20th century, this idea of inerrancy, but it's, it's really not. DeYoung, in his book on, on the Bible I've just mentioned, defines inerrancy this way, quote, inerrancy means the word of God always stands over us, and we never stand over the word of God, unquote. I think that's helpful. What do we mean by inerrancy? Inerrancy means the word of God always stands over us, and we never stand over the word of God. We know better. We, 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 can, we, we, we just don't see things quite the way God does because we know more now. It's not how we ought to come to the Word. We ought to be under it. It's a norm to help us in our study of the world and ourselves. It will not be found incorrect on anything that it affirms. It corrects us and helps us keep our focus. It is an unassailable guide. I was thinking, trying to think of another word. That's the word that came to mind. A, 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 something that can't be conquered by attack. Uh, by any attack, it, it teaches us, and it will not be conquered. It teaches us all that we need for this life, for his glory, as Article 2 summarizes it in our salvation. There are critics today who say that the Bible's full of, full of errors. And I, I wasn't going to go into to more books, but just one other book I think that's helpful, and that is misquoting the truth. Um, the author escapes me at the moment. You can ask me about it afterwards. But dealing with uh, um, uh, another book by a, a religion professor down at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, calling Misquoting Jesus, his response is misquoting the truth. And in it, he says all of these errors that this, that this, religious, this religion professor gives are, are, need to be looked at more carefully and closely and then we find the bias and we see how they are overturned. They are not truly the errors or the mon- monumentous errors that he claims they are. In fact, the Bible is kept in an amazing way over thousands of years and the number of manuscripts that we have that support the word that we have before us. The Bible teaches us that we've, what we see has been made by God and has been made to bring glory to God, that he's made us for his glory. His law is written for us to reveal transgression and to teach us what is pleasing to him. We don't need to go to the news media. We don't need to go to polls taken in the city square to find out, well, what do we think is, is good and what is right? We need to go to God's word. And tonight, the point of, of, of our reflection is that God is knowable. He can be known. We've looked at his nature and his attributes. 
which he has revealed about himself and his word. These are important to remember. To know God shapes the way we live. I've talked, we've talked about that. Doctrine matters. The way we see God, the way we understand him, then informs the way we, we, we feel, the way we act, the way we, we, we uh, go out, and, and what we see to be our purpose from day to day. When we studied God's nature and attributes in Article 1, the question was asked, can we know God as he is in himself? No, the finite cannot contain the infinite. We, we looked at that. But we can know him because he has revealed himself to us. All that we need to know for his glory and for our salvation. That, that, that's the, the scriptures. And, and that then flows over and has application to the way we, the way we live every day. It is a, a book that helps us. It is God's word to us to help us live for him. When someone says, well, because we can't know all, the, all about God as he is in himself, we can't know anything about God, that's a false humility, and we've got to understand it for what it is. Be careful with those who say, well, you know, we can't really know God as he is in himself. And you say, that's true. But we can know what he has revealed, what he has given to us. And we are responsible for it. God says, go out and tell others about me that they too might hear and believe. That they might understand why you live the way you do. And what a difference knowing the one true God makes. Now, one other thing I wanted to mention in this, in this regard is the Scriptures speak of exclusivity. And they speak of Jesus as the only way to the Father. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And there are many who say... You know, again, I, I've got great respect for the Bible. It's, it's a great book. It's, it's really been, it's, it's amazing how foundational it is for, for Christianity and all of the rest. But it, it can't tell you everything. You, for that, you need all the religions. Why are there all these other religions? Why do we have all these, these other uh, uh, ways of looking at uh, the world and seeing the world? Well, we, we could spend a lot of time on that. But let me just say by summary, because we are idol factories and we make idols. We want God to be in our image. We want the salvation uh, to, to revolve around us and what we can do and how we can accomplish this. And God is not glorified in those religions. There, there's even a, a story about this that I think is, is helpful. I want to share it with you. Uh, it's a story that supposedly tells us uh, or illustrates that we can't know God through one religion only. It's the story about the six blind men and the elephant. I don't know if you've heard the story, but it's often marched out whenever people want to say, well, I mean, come on, can one faith really tell you what you need to know? And it's, it's these, these blind men, and they're all standing up against an elephant, and one of them's touching his side and says, oh, it's, it's a wall. And one grabs the ear and says, oh, it's, it's a fan. And then one grabs the tail and says, oh, it's like a rope. And, and the rest of them give their takes from different parts of, of the elephant. And the, 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 the point is that, that we're, all, we're all blind when we come to, to God, and we can only learn about who God is in, in, in total as we listen to all these others who are sharing what they've learned about God. It sounds so humble and so, oh, well, yeah, that, that's true. We, we want to listen to others, and, and we, we do. We want to have conversation with other religions and so on. But what's missing is that God doesn't remain mute. 
and say, well, now just walk up to me and, and, and kind of feel your way through and, and try, to, try to understand me as far as you can. He says, this is who I am. And this is who you must worship. And this is the only way that you can be saved. The, the men are blind, but God is not mute. He reveals. He speaks. Zedbrink so draws an end to this notion that, well, you know, and, and yes, in our understanding, we are limited. We do need the Spirit, as we talked about this morning, the coming of God, Pentecost, the Spirit. But God does speak clearly, completely, all that we need for life, to his glory and for salvation. His very word has been written down and preserved for us. He is not silent. I was thinking about that this week, and I thought to myself, we have all this talk about pride today, pride in this, pride in that. We're so proud of this, so proud of that, all of our accomplishments. And I heard someone say it recently. I don't remember who it was. They said, we need a bit more humility. A bit more humility in our own way of looking at the world and thinking how we can see things and do things and accomplish things and be more humble. And humility in the right place. Not a humility that says, we can't know anything about God. We just have to kind of feel our way through life and just kind of bump our heads and our shins and everything, and we'll eventually find our way. No, we need to humble ourselves under the Word of God, where God says, I am speaking to you through my Word. I am knowable. And furthermore, he says, not only there, but look outside in creation. You can see me everywhere. This does not happen by chance. There's enough there to convict and to, to, to draw us to say there, there's got to be more. Now, Calvin says general revelation can't uh, uh, convert, but it certainly leaves man without excuse. Now, he's going on what, what the scriptures teach there. Some have looked at the world and said there's got to be more, and they look deeper, and they look deeper, and someone comes along and says, well, you know who made it all, don't you? And there's a time for witness. So we, so we want to understand what he's, what he's saying. But, but it's in the Word that, that we understand all that we see. Oh, where did this come from? From a Word. Where, where, where did our blindness come from? From our sin. What changes it? A Word. His name is Jesus. The Word from God. The Word that was in the beginning with God, who was of God, who was God, John chapter 1. And the one who speaks to us yet today by his spirit. The triune God who speaks to us through his word. Christ has come in the flesh to reveal what it looks like for us to live for the Lord. To live for his glory. We don't have to wonder, well, what does that even look like? I live for his glory. That seems like kind of a nebulous concept. Jesus lived for the Father's glory. And he said, you must be, become like me. And John the Baptist says, I must decrease, he must increase. I must stop focusing on myself and my way of thinking, and, and, and he must be more visible in his speech. And we would add more visible in our lives as we become more like him. So as we look at this matter of how we come to know God, the summary of it 
of Scripture is this. God has taken a tremendous care for us and for our salvation, revealing his word to us in writing so that we might not misunderstand. So it is our prayer then that God would work in us by his spirit that we might listen and obey. And all the while we were to give thanks to God for his clear revelation to us. Well, let's do that now. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your revelation to us. How marvelous that we have your very word, that you have preserved it. We are recipients of a truly great gift. The word which speaks to your son in whom there is life. Oh, we don't worship the words on the page. We're not bowing down to our Bibles. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is that your word is living and active and ought to move us to love you, that we ought to delight in, desire, and depend upon your word as it leads us in relationship with you. We pray, dear Father, that we would not be confused by the conversations we hear others speak. May we never walk away from the word thinking that our experience, independent of any of your revelation, is, is supreme. May we rather cling to your word and to your very words. Father, we thank you again for your word. May it guide us this week as your spirit speaks to our hearts through it, pointing us to Jesus. We ask in his name, amen.